Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On today's pod, Daiichi and AstraZeneca steal the show at ESMO. The latest from Washington and French VC JATO closes Europe's biggest biotech fund. Well, Lauren, you've been uh, spending a lot of time writing about KRAS. We've seen data from Amgen last week, and then on early Sunday morning, we had some data from Marathi. And then all of a sudden, we get this data out of Daiichi and AstraZeneca. And HER2 reduced the risk of disease progression in HER2-positive breast cancer by 72%. In the key secondary endpoint of PFS, as assessed by investigators, patients treated with NHER2 experienced a three-fold improvement in PFS of 25 months versus seven months for CADSILA. NHER2 received accelerated approval in late 2019 for third-line HER2-positive breast cancer, well ahead of its PDUFA date after setting a new bar in the indication. Lauren, what do these data mean? Well, I think based on how well Inher2 performed in third line, especially relative to Herceptin and even to Cadsila, the other approved ADC against HER2, I think we expected the data to be good. I don't think anyone expected it to be this good, an 18-month PFS improvement over another HER2-targeting ADC. But that just goes to show how much difference can go into these molecules too. This is a different toxin attached to the antibody and a different linker, and all of this contributes to efficacy in the end. So Lauren, I guess the real question then is when can we expect to see regulatory action on this? So this was the investigator's assessment of PFS. We don't actually have the full PFS data and the overall survival data is still immature. But I think just given the amount of benefit here, we could expect this to move relatively quickly. It was an accelerated approval in the third line setting and we'll see what happens in second line. Yeah, oncology is so proactive and they move so quickly on these things. You'd expect to see this going through really like a rocket. What does it say, if anything, Lauren, about other next generation approaches to HER2, are we going to be seeing just a string of these? Because it's a target against which many companies are developing next generation antibodies by specifics, ADCs, are big efficacy gains in store for other programs. I think that's the hope. We do a lot of analysis of pipelines for different conferences and things like that. And they're all just flooded with next generation antibodies against HER2 whether it's FC-engineered standard antibodies or ADCs or even bispecifics. And there was some great data from Zymeworks for a bispecific at ESMO, which was in HER2-positive gastric cancer. I think HER2 is a great example of a target that is so well-established for first-generation antibodies that is seeing a huge amount of improvement in the next-generation antibody structures. I think the hope is that we'll see the same for other targets, but I think within HER2, hopefully we'll continue to see these types of huge gains for patients and for efficacy that the advances are showing now. That's right. And at the end of the day, 
getting beyond incremental increases of a month PFS or so is what oncology companies ought to be shooting for with uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. new technologies. All right. Well, Daiichi and AstraZeneca are also assessing this therapy as monotherapy across multiple HER2 targetable cancers, including breast, gastric, lung, and colorectal. And they have it in trials in combination with immunotherapy as well. Now, these weren't the only data from AstraZeneca. We saw some other data at ESMO on Friday that sent a few biotech stocks such as Corvus soaring. Lauren, tell us about what set things rolling on Friday. Yeah, so this was the phase two COAST study, which was testing AstraZeneca's PD-1 inhibitor in Finzi in two different combinations. So they tested it with their CD73 inhibitor, Oleclimab, and separately with an NKG2A inhibitor, Monolizumab, which they got from Innate Pharma. So I think Innate Pharma was also way up on this data. But what was interesting about this study is that the Infinzi monotherapy arm the data didn't look great. So they reported just over six months of progression-free survival in that arm. And in other studies in similar patient populations, the PFS was way higher, 17 months and 22 months. The data in the two combination arms really looked great compared with the monotherapy arm. And that sent CD73 stock storing and innate pharma for their NK cell checkpoint inhibitor monolizumab. We'll see how the data play out in the future studies. Yeah, the interoperability was in question because the other studies, the phase three Pacific and Pacific R, those, well, one was a very large phase three and one was a real world evidence mm-hmm. study, but they both had a, a larger in size and they had the exact same enrollment criteria, but placebo there performed like infancy monotherapy did in the COAST trial. But the, you know, the company offered some possible explanations for that. So even though the enrollment criteria were the same, the actual enrolled patients, the profile of them, how sick they were, there are some differences there. Yeah, well. I think that there were more patients that were over 75, and there are more patients in the stage 3B and stage 3C groups in the most recent, the COAST study. Real question here, though, is how did they slip the name Mona Lizumab past the naming authorities? I thought that kind of stuff was meant to stay in the Louvre. All right. Well, we love our KRAS here at BioCentury, and Lauren has been following Amgen's KRAS program since the early days, as well as the one from Marathi. Marathi has a new CEO as of today. Bit of a horse race here, Lauren. Can you break down the two sets of data for us? I think the biggest take home from both of these data sets is that the combination of a KRAS inhibitor and an EGFR inhibitor in colorectal cancer seems to be really promising and seems to work. So we saw Amgen's data from last week for Lumacras when they combined it with an EGFR inhibitor, they saw a 27% ORR, which is great considering how challenging colorectal cancer is. When I spoke with Amgen, they're focusing on lung cancer where they're already approved. And this is their other big focus, even though there are a lot of cancers that express KRAS mutations. This is where they're really going forward with combinations. I guess the logic here is that if you treat someone with a KRAS inhibitor, 
the EGFR pathways are upregulated adaptively in response. So the thought is that if you block these together, you'll get possibly higher response rates, but also hopefully more durability, which has been in question with KRAS inhibitors. Maybe we'll see more positives to come when we see more durability data too. The update today is that yesterday, Marathi shared their data, which the response rates were above 40% in combination with a different EGFR inhibitor. And they also shared some positive monotherapy data. I think it was about 22% OR. Lauren, as, as people look at the data sets from these three companies, what do you think are some of the key factors they should keep in mind when they're comparing across the trials? The first thing is that the patients in the Marathi trial may have been a little bit sicker. The median number of prior therapies was three. And in Amgen's trial, it was two. That being said, Amgen's trial, the results that we saw were in the intent to treat population. They did include some patients who had previously been treated with a KRAS inhibitor and who progressed on that. It was just five, but they didn't do as well as the other patients. And there's also the issue of, of PK and dosing, which has come up throughout the development process for both of these. Amgen's is dosed once a day and Marathi's is dosed twice a day, which could have an impact on efficacy. All right. Thanks for that, Lauren. And you can find Lauren's stories online at biocentury.com. David Meek is the new CEO of Marathi. He began his career in the biopharma industry in 1989 at J&J. He has served as an executive at Novartis and Novartis Oncology. He was the president of oncology at Baxalta for a couple of years until that company was acquired by Shire. And more recently, he was CEO of French Biopharma Ipsen, as well as president and CEO of Furgene, which is a gene therapy company focused on bladder cancer. Let's turn to Washington. Steve, you had a busy Friday. You were tuned in to the FDA Advisory Committee meeting on COVID boosters. What was the key takeaway from that meeting? Well, I'd start by having to remind everybody we're talking. It's one o'clock on Monday afternoon. Who knows what's going to happen the rest of today or the next few days? We don't know what FDA is going to do with the recommendation from the meeting. I think it's also important to note that this isn't the last bite at the apple. Moderna and J&J are going to be making similar requests in the coming weeks. And if FDA does what I expect, and grants a a narrow label for third shots, probably for people age 65, maybe 60 and older, plus those who are at risk of serious disease, and maybe a third category being people who are at risk because of their occupational exposures, that it's likely we're going to see requests in the coming weeks or months to expand the label to larger age groups and populations. I also think it's important to say that, well, third shots may be important for some people, 2,000 people died in the United States yesterday from COVID, and many thousands more around the world did. And the vast majority of them were completely unvaccinated. And that's a catastrophe that isn't generating the concern or outrage. I think it should, and it has nothing to do with third shots. You know, that rant out of the way. I think there were competing ideas at the advisory committee meeting. Pfizer, the Israeli health authorities, and implicitly CBER director Peter Marks, all argue that there's strong data showing that the COVID vaccine efficacy wanes and that a third shot, you can call it a booster or just 
a third part of the regimen. There's some debate about that. Dramatically increases protection. An academic gave a presentation poking holes in that data, suggesting that there's a great deal of uncertainty about whether and how much efficacy is waning. Even if you take the data that Pfizer presented and the Israelis presented at face value, the error bars are enormous. And there's especially a great deal of uncertainty about the benefits of a third shot. One of the most important unknowns is the duration of benefit. The trials and the data haven't gone on long enough to know whether that any extra benefit is going to be durable. CDC officials said on the one hand that mRNA vaccines are highly effective, including against the Delta variant, at preventing serious disease and hospitalization. On the other hand, they express confidence in the benefits of boosters. So there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of ideas on both sides. Pfizer basically said, we can't afford to wait for definitive data. By the time that it comes, it may be too late. And many Americans will have needlessly suffered because they didn't get a third shot. There are other people that counter that by saying that there have been a lot of mistakes made in the pandemic because people acted hastily based on what they guessed or hoped rather than on data. One example is that hundreds of thousands of people received convalescent plasma before good studies were conducted. A lot of the people who are supporting the third shots of the mRNA vaccines also supported convalescent plasma. And it's turned out that when the studies were finally done, that convalescent plasma doesn't provide any benefit at all. Yeah, it's certainly a very difficult balancing act. What do you expect to happen, Steve? I think that, I think that there's another element of this in terms of what's going to happen that hasn't been focused on. I, I touched on in my story. This is the first advisory committee meeting on a COVID vaccine where the FDA and the sponsor weren't completely aligned on what the outcome should be and what data should be presented. I think that happened because there's a split at FDA with Peter Marks favoring a broad booster approval and Marion Gruber and Phil Krause, the two senior vaccine officials who have announced their resignations, being skeptical that the data supports either the safety and efficacy or the public health need. The company went with Marks and ultimately the committee kind of tried to, to split the difference. The real question going forward, I think, is whether we can get back to having alignment between the companies that are developing these products and the regulators. Usually you'd think that there should be arms length distance and maybe even an adversarial relationship would be better at getting the truth out. But I, I don't think that's the case in this case because the public health consequences are so stark and so important that it would be a lot better if everybody were pulling in the same direction. I mean, it's one thing to have scientific disagreements about how to interpret the data, but it's another to have public disputes between FDA frontline staff and senior staff and the White House and the CDC going forward. It's something to really watch and to hope that can get resolved so that everybody can get back to focusing on the big picture, which is trying to get the pandemic under control. The next big regulatory event on the agenda for vaccines will be for children under the age 12, right? Are we likely to see alignment or less alignment? I don't know. That's going to be an interesting thing. I haven't heard much dispute about that. But on the other hand, there's a lot of concern about safety in the, the younger population. And the data that Pfizer announced today, they said the top line data, they said that they showed strong efficacy signals in children 5 to 11 and good safety data was based on a very small sample size, 1,500 kids. It's again, it's the same dilemma, I think, as with the third shots. Clearly, there's a much clearer need for vaccination in the younger age. We're seeing a lot of tragic cases of young children getting COVID, some of them getting serious cases, some of them dying. 
So there's a need for a vaccine in that young age on the one hand. On the other hand, is the safety database here big enough? Right, um, because these are healthy children that you're giving yeah. it to. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really, it's a tough dilemma. And it comes down to the same basic issue, I think, as with the third shots, which is, can the world afford to wait for definitive data? Or should it act on the best data that it has now, recognizing that there may have to be a course correction when more data comes in? One thing I'd say as a final point on the process of the whole thing is that I think that all of the COVID vaccine advisory committee meetings demonstrate how the advisory committee process is really broken. There are people on the committee who don't really belong there, who clearly aren't experts. And in this last meeting, I was really disappointed. I thought they really didn't take the issues that they were discussing with the level of seriousness and rigor that I think they deserved. For example, they were just clearly just spitballing it when they said that they wanted to they recommend a minimum age for third shots at age 65. There was one panelist who said, oh, we should make it 60 because he's 63 and he wants one. That's not the kind of thing that you should be talking about at a public meeting like this, I think. When FDA pivoted from Pfizer's application for a supplemental BLA to an emergency use authorization, there was zero discussion among the committee members or to the committee about what the implications of changing from an SBLA to an EUA are. I think that when this is all over with, among many other things, one of the pandemic responses is going to have to be improving the advisory committee process. You also had one member of the panel say that his wife had received a third dose already, and he planned to get one that very afternoon, which... Uh, yeah, what's that all about? You know? uh, yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> it wasn't really what you would want to hear. Yeah, and kids are desperate to get this. Yeah, that's, that's frustrating. Well, speaking of frustrating, why don't we turn to drug pricing, Steve? What's the latest in Washington? So quickly, last week, the Energy and Commerce Committee tried to include H.R. 3 in the big $3.5 trillion budget bill that the Democrats in the House and the Senate hoped to pass using reconciliation language. Three Democrats on the Energy and Commerce Committee voted against it, and that was enough to prevent it from going forward in the Energy and Commerce Committee. Later the same day, the Ways and Means Committee did add exactly the same language to the bill, but that was a blow for House Democratic leadership and for advocates of that kind of price control measures. All that the opponents need is to get one more House Democrat to oppose H.R. 3 and similar measures and to stick by their guns, and it won't be able to pass out of the House. Ultimately, that's really a symbolic issue because the real decisions are going to be made in the Senate. The Senate isn't going to pass anything nearly as far sweeping as H.R. 3, but I think that Senator Wyden, the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, who's really in charge of shaping the drug pricing provisions in the Senate bill, has got to be looking at the House and saying, well, if the House is having difficulty passing H.R. 3 or something similar to that, then in the Senate, they're going to have to tread more lightly on this issue. Of course, with the comments that Senator Manchin has made over the weekend and today, it cast out on whether the legislation is going to go forward at all this year. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. Thanks for that update, Steve. And turning to our deal in focus, Jato, the French VC led by Raphael Chiordman, who is an alum of Sofinova Partners, 
has just raised Europe's largest biotech fund at 534 million euros. The firm is gearing up to flesh out its portfolio of European companies focused on severe diseases in small patient populations. Now, I spoke with Raphael on Friday ahead of this news, and she reminded me that the firm's sweet spot is investing in series B and C rounds. She did say that the firm will invest earlier, though they're not into company creation, as well as later. The firm needs to see at least preclinical proof of concept data before backing a company, and it will consider investing after a seed round and at IPO as well as after a public listing. The firm plans to invest in 15 companies it prefers to lead or co-lead so that it can help shape the company's direction. The firm's skill sets cover each stage of a company's development path, spanning operational, clinical development, and market access expertise. So unlike some firms who may have one of their venture partners sit on the board of a company, she has a whole investment team working with a company. She said that her team members are obsessed by a company's path from the earliest stages of development to a product's arrival on the market. They have five portfolio companies already, and they are particularly interested in cell and gene therapy. LPs include Tomasek, which is the deep-pocketed Singaporean investor, that firm was attracted to JTO because of its European focus. Tomasek already has a stake in BioNTech, the German mRNA company. Another investor, or LP rather, out of Asia is Wuxi Aptek, obviously a big name there. Additional LPs include the European Investment Fund and the $160 billion teacher retirement system of Texas. It will be interesting to see what they invest in next. Another cool thing about this firm, largely led by women, top partners, all women. Women in biotech is a big issue for Raphael. She's also the founder and chair of Women Innovating Together in Healthcare which is a network of women in industry, medicine, research, charity, and finance. And she has established the JTO Foundation, which aims to empower early medical innovation by women. That's all we have time for today. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.